Hello. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. My name's Ned Buskirk. I'm your host. This is your Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. Maybe you're only one. I haven't heard of another one yet, but that's what this is. And I'm your Creatively Conscious Mortal host. Oh, I want to talk today about something in particular. Um, the gifts, the gifts of the hardest parts of being mortal. I'm usually really careful about talking about this. You know, you go into a room and you're sitting with a cancer patient and you want to talk to them about their health journey and you, you know, you know, they don't want to hear you say, so what are the gifts? What are the gifts of your cancer? Uh, what are the gifts of, of losing your mom when you were 26? Tell me about that. It's, it's, it's not something that can be forced and it's so personal. It's like, we need to get there on our own when we go through these hard things in life. To have anyone like lead us there too quickly or too, too, too loudly, almost like abrasively to move past what's hard and get to the things that are good because the hard thing is happening. I, I've just learned in the years of doing this that there's something, there's, a, there's another kind of listening for that possibility, but it's there. I mean, I have my own version of it. I've said it before, like my mom, her death, it's the worst, best thing that ever happened to me. And that's because I wouldn't even be here in your ear if it wasn't for her death. I, I, I'm positive of that fact. I wouldn't be doing the work with cancer patients. I wouldn't be doing the work with our prison program. I wouldn't have 10 years of events holding space with community for grief and mortality and engaging and connecting and feeling the deepening from these spaces and this work in my life, the enrichment that, that comes with this conversation with community. And I can definitively say that's connected to the death of my mom and the death of my mother-in-law and the other losses and hardships of my life. Like for sure, for sure I'm here because of that. So there are gifts. It's real, but also, yeah, like don't force it on anybody. Like don't start there with someone let them bring you to it. They need to get there. I needed to get to that. I needed to get to the gifts. I needed to create meaning out of my losses, out of my heartbreak. But there are gifts. They're there. I know they exist. And it doesn't erase what's hard. But I have this, I had this moment this week. I went into the hospital and I go in and I sit with these patients and I have conversations that are driven by creative engagement, offering a chance to be creative to process and create out of what we're going through. And so I go room to room at the hospital and I just see who's down to do that. But it's actually, I think, more of an access point. The creativity is more of an access point to, hey, can I just sit with you and not rush off? Cause I, cause I, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a doctor. I don't have another room to get to immediately. I'm not here to administer a test. I'm here to like sit and listen and be with you. And so I was doing that this week, making those visits room to room. And I walked into this one room and I immediately saw that I was walking in on something that was uh, maybe not uh, appropriate for me to be in the space of. And so I was like backing out and I was like, I'll come back later. And then this patient who was sitting in his vulnerably in his little glowing hospital gown with his head bowed by the window of his room 
while a priest is standing over him, this patient like beckons me forth. And so I, I had to like accept the invitation. I, I don't know. I mean, I couldn't, I, I, I just did. I walked in and I just stood there while this, this man accepted communion between his bed and his window. And I just, I, I mean, I observed, but I also like bowed my head and kind of like got enveloped by the sacredness and the peace of it. Like I left the hospital and went to another planet or a church and this man taking his, his wafer from the priest's fingers and the holy water drops on his cancer patient head. And I just got to like be in that. And the presence I had there and the witnessing I got and then the conversation subsequently with that patient after the priest left that was pretty brief because the, the patient was tired and, and welcoming, but also knew his limits. And that allowed for us to have a really sweet exchange about what it meant for me to be in the space while he got communion and, and the acknowledgement, I think, double checking that it was okay and, and the smiles and the eye contact and the connection and the lightness and the laughter and all because my mom died so many years ago and this man is dealing with cancer a cancer diagnosis that we all know has as much possibility of death as it has of life maybe and we shared that and it was a gift and I left, I left with that and I have it here and I'm sharing it with you. And so I do want to talk about gifts and I want to talk about gifts now because I'm feeling it, but also because of the guest that we have in the episode today. I actually met Latamani um, because of another guest, Ladyburg Morgan. And if you haven't listened to Lady Bird Morgan's episode, definitely go back into the You're Going to Die catalog and check that out. She's wonderful. And, and I consider her a friend. And since uh, then, we've talked a lot and connected. And she's introduced me to some people that that I've asked to be on the show. And Latamani is one of those people. The introduction for me was Lady Bird sending me a movie, a short 60-minute film called The Poetics of Fragility. And it's a kaleidoscope exploration of the texture, vitality, and aesthetics of fragility. And it interweaves stories of bodily frailty with optical vignettes of nature's delicacy to reclaim fragility as intrinsic to existence, not something to be bemoaned or overcome. And it's like this movie, I was just not surprisingly in tears watching it and good measurement for better send an email immediately to Lata and see if she's down to have a conversation with you. And she was, and this film is its own medicine, but that it speaks to this being with our fragile bodies and the access we have through loss and our health challenges to be in our fragility and have life press up against death. Like what it means to be at that edge what's waiting there for us, maybe. 
as hard as it is, as dark as it is, as alone as it can feel, that also simultaneously or in contrast, there might also be an expansion of our presence, of our heart and our love and our aliveness. And this isn't like me hoping, like I've lived it. I've lived it. I lived through it when my mom died and my mom was dying. I've lived through it in these rooms and in these workshops and events. I, I, I felt it. And this movie, oh, if you don't listen to this whole episode, just go to the poetics of fragility.com and watch the film. I mean, it's free. And Latamani, though, <laughs> you should actually listen to the whole episode. <laughs> um, absolutely. But the film is conceived and scripted by Lata, and it features internationally renowned scholar activist Angela Davis the acclaimed playwright and critic Shari Moraga, feminist performance artist Tao Nguyen from Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, actor-dancer Greg Manalo, Yasmin Perales, uh, a wonderful young trombone talent, among many others. So when you get a chance, after you hear the episode, go watch the film. Like find a little safe, protected hour to just be in that immersion. So Dr. Latamani is a cultural critic, contemplative writer, and filmmaker. She has published books and articles on a broad range of issues from feminism and colonialism to illness, spiritual philosophy, and contemporary politics. The Poetics of Fragility is a collaboration with Nicholas Grandy, and it is her most recent transmedia project. And she also has a book. Both of these are free. Uh, her book, Radiant Anguish, with friend J.S., it's her most recent book. And she has another book coming out called Myriad Intimacies, a collection interspersing text and videos. And it's forthcoming from Duke University Press in 2022. I hope you enjoy this episode. And, and I hope you, um, I don't know, I guess consider, consider the gifts. But I also want to acknowledge that you may be in a place that is just hard and dark. And I want you to know that like, you need to be met there. There is no rush. In fact, rushing that place might make gifts impossible. But for wherever you are in your life right now, I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad I'm in your little ear, standing here in your ear canal, yelling, yelling up at you. Hello, enjoy the show. Enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Dr. Lata Mani. I'm in my mid-60s, and I was born in India, but I lived in the UK and most of my life, I mean, more than half of my life in the US. And the, um, the particular experience that brought me um, to this set of questions of living, dying, was a head injury that I um, suffered uh, on my way to teach at the University of California at Davis. I was teaching in women's studies, uh, 
This was 1993, so it was, you know, almost 30 years ago now. Um, and I was 35. And in a matter of, um, I would say, minute or two, my life literally went for a toss. I, it was a beautiful morning, clear sky. I was driving at 55 miles an hour, contraflow. Most of the traffic was coming to the city from Sacramento. And I noticed that there were highway patrol cars with their lights on in the rearview mirror. I, in moving away from them, however, I inadvertently moved into the path of a young man who was very, very depressed and had stolen a Pepsi-Cola truck and was trying to kill himself and plowed into my car at 100 miles an hour. And it was one of those trucks with bottles, not even cans. So um, I saw him coming. There was nothing I could do. My um, car flew into the air. Um, it just spun round and round. Everything was in slow motion. And I ended up eight, eight lanes over on the other side of the freeway facing San Francisco. So I was shocked to be alive, although there was something about being, while I was in the air, I had this distinct sense that I wasn't done, that my life wasn't done. And I don't know where the thought fell from or what to make of it. Um, but when I landed, um, my key thought was, how shall I get out before the car blows up? Because mm -hmm. I'd seen so many movies where mm -hmm. you have a crash <laughs> and then you have the f a fire engulfing the car. So anyway, that was the beginning of a very long journey. Needless to say, I never went back to work. Uh, and I would say that I was, uh, um, it was an initiation into a parallel universe of the uh, chronically ill and disabled. And um, I was homebound for about eight years and then slowly started to make my way into the world. I still have many disabilities that I live with, but I must say that the kind of education that I received uh, during that time uh, amplified and deepened everything that I had learned in graduate school and in my uh, PhD training. And um, what I am very, very grateful for is that when there is a rupture in a life, one can imagine that the past it becomes entirely irrelevant to, the, to that moment when things changed. But as we know, life, the lessons or the invitations in life are always much more paradoxical than that. So as I became better, the invitation to me was to integrate my training as a cultural critic and as a feminist and as a historian into this new uh, landscape into which I had been thrust of the ill and the disabled. And in the, in the intervening years or in the subsequent years, I should say, that's the correct term, I have started to write and um, make art, films about issues that have to do with fragility, illness, uh, the dance of the sacred and the secular, and how the different forms of knowing that are gifted to us in this historical time can be brought together um, uh, to improvise uh, better ways of understanding and working with life. Um, rather like the jazz musician uh, improvising 
musicians improvising with each other, I think we can improvise drawing on all these streams of knowledge and asking what each can um, give us in understanding better mm-hmm. or more subtly what it is, what it means to be human. Mm. Thank you for that. You, 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 got, you got ahead of me on something I meant to ask in my introduce yourself. It's like, where does, you know, it's a version of why are we talking? Like, why are you on this podcast with me? And that really um, is more than I could have hoped for with the words. I, I knowing of this injury that happened to you uh, before we got to talk today, I was wanting to make time to touch on that. And I know before we press record, I, I asked you if it was okay to, to be, to be able to make time for that. And it feels like a really important first thing to say. And I I kind of intuited the likelihood of that before we press record, you said, maybe, maybe I won't try to paraphrase, but maybe you could speak to that, this kind of knowing where you are now, even talking to me is connected to that moment when those police lights lit up in your rearview mirror and that there's some way of there being meaning here because of that happening. Does that resonate? Absolutely, because I think in many ways what I discovered uh, in the depths of my injury was that, you know, there's a wonderful distinction that Stephen Levine makes between pain and suffering. Right. Pain is the physical experience and suffering is all the mental architecture and the psychological and emotional architecture, which means we respond to the pain in a particular way. And what I learned, even though I my my academic work had dealt with the body, I myself had never inhabited my body fully. Pain made me very honest. It flung me into my body and brought me into a kind of intimacy with my, the cellular, the molecular aspects of my existence that I had never really paid much attention to. And I would say that even more than the physical pain that I had to endure was my resistance to what had become of me the highly functional individual suddenly not able to know if she's hungry or not, um, what time of day it might be, or how old she is. So, you know, things became stripped to the very elemental. And there is some adjustment for the person in that situation, but there's an even greater adjustment for everybody else around them. Because you represent a catastrophe in the lives of others. Your life or your life experience and the sudden shift and transition that you have experienced reminds other people of uh, their mortality, their fragility, and of uh, what you might call the terror of impermanence. But the gift to me was I began by surrendering to what my body and my situation was teaching me to understand the joy of impermanence. And to understand that impermanence is not a breakdown or a break up, but an opening to understanding something very, very fundamental about life. Because if we live in interdependence, and we do, none of us is um, separable uh, from anyone else. And if we live in impermanence, 
which with things constantly evolving, then it stands to reason that everything is constantly modifying everything else and transformation or change is really the only constant, as is often said. And yet, there is something about the way we orient ourselves to human existence and orient and are taught to think about life, which doesn't prepare us for one of the most fundamental aspects of life, which is that it is constantly evolving, constantly changing, and that change need not spell terror. But if we are open to the mystery of what that change might reveal, if we just suspend judgment, I think that there are many, many gifts that come our way and for which I am deeply grateful. I can honestly say there isn't a day when I wish that the accident hadn't happened to me, even though I will say that um, the uncertainty of living with such a destabilized body has been a defining hallmark of my existence. And uh, there's nothing simple and easy about that. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. Well, I think it comes back to something I've been thinking all along, which is uh, this combination of being with the terror that I'm sure you've had to face and the reaping the kind of gifts and wisdom of making relationship with, like you said, change, chaos, impermanence, fragility. And and so you bringing it back to that acknowledgement of the significance of this happening in your life and the significant impact it's had on you and your body and your mind. So then your being in the world that it's all these things it it does. You, you have to be engaged with the all the parts to learn the lessons or create the meaning. I have this wondering about you being overjoyed for surviving coupled with having to deal with the life-changing um injuries that you sustained in that accident that you would have both simultaneously i'm wondering then is that accurate i mean you were having this kind of balancing of the miracle of you surviving an accident like that but still having to deal with the things that happened to you that hurt your body right and here I have to introduce the second um, element, uh, the second gift that came to me in the um, detritus of what had become of my life. And um, that was a very spontaneous spiritual opening, uh, which sometimes happens to people with brain injuries. Um, I was a very secular person, but in the depths of the injury, the gift of physical injury is that you're dropped into the present. So you are so occupied because the whole universe, the body becomes your universe or whatever it is that you're experiencing becomes your universe and you discover worlds within worlds there. And the way your mind always futures when you are well, able-bodied and moving in the world with a certain kind of freedom that may be part of the privilege that you have experienced, um, you don't have that temptation. There simply isn't enough... Um, attention to move in that direction. So you're very in the present. But in the present of that injury, uh, in the present of that experience of the injury was a presence that I began to feel and which I recognized without any prior history or meeting to be the feminine divine. I cannot explain 
why that is what I recognized it to be. But it was a very powerful, very tender, very loving energy. And I felt that it was inviting me to die out of an old self so a new self could be born. Now, those words, you can try to make sense of them. But all I can tell you is that I felt that I was flooded with love. And if I was willing to risk letting go of what I thought I knew and simply being there in the arms of this love, something uh, unique or something that I had not yet experienced up until that point might unfold for me. And I couldn't resist it. And I went along with it. And one of the challenges of this mode of speech is that I know if I were to have been listening to this podcast at the time of my accident, I would be tempted to have a kind of um, balance sheet approach. On the one hand, the injury. On the other hand, the mm-hmm. opening. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always trying to add it and see whether the, yeah, the pros uh, you and know, cons. <laughs> whether it's a net gain or a net loss, and mm. you know, how do you feel about it? But as you know, life's not like that. It's a, it's a continual dance between gain and loss, love and the opposite of love, whatever that might be, uh, expansion and contraction. And if we think about it all in terms of breathing, you know, we need to breathe in and we need to breathe out. And if we can think of all these things that we oppose in relation to inhalation and exhalation, the expansion and the contraction, that is an integral, natural aspect of being alive, then I think we can um, open ourselves to kinds of learning for which we don't have language in our ordinary ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. So the challenge for me has always been how to speak about this, what felt to me exceptional but is actually a very ordinary human experience. Mm. And how to convey it in a way that everyone feels empowered and entitled to open to that dimension of their own lives and not to feel like this must be somebody with a special kind of courage. Mm. Because I don't think that's true. I think we are each given the courage that we need and we have each come to do something and what a greater gift than the opportunity to discover that mm-hmm. well said thank you i wonder just to use this moment uh as a transition into the projects that were the access point to me meeting you is you think of poetics of fragility the film and um radiant anguish the book uh and i'd love for you to sort of introduce those two two projects uh to the listeners but do you think of those as a way of um inviting people into what you just described you know it's almost like it feels like i think of your film as a of uh a manifestation of everything you just put into words. And so then a creative doorway for people to cross into, to enter into a relationship with some of these 
things you've lived through over the last 20 years or so. Does that, Absolutely. it might be a leap to jump ahead to that, but. No, it's actually, um, it's, a, it's a very natural segue, especially if I tell you how it is that we came to make the film. The, the uh, Poetics of Fragility project is a collaborative project with a, a very dear Argentinian filmmaker friend, Nicolas Grandi. So I, I just want to name him here mm -hmm. uh, because it's important because we are working on this together. Um, in, I think it was 2013 at the Bangalore Queer Film Festival, the closing film uh, the, uh, uh, was a film called What Now Remind Me, or let me... Yes, What Now Remind Me. It was a film made by a very famous Portuguese uh, sound recordist about living with HIV for 20 years. And it was really a document of one year in his life when he went on an experimental drug. It's a three-hour film. It's a masterpiece. And it looks at his uh, bodily experience, and he goes through this experimental drug exp uh, with another, another uh, friend, but it's also a reflection on the history of uh, activism against HIV, on the history of pandemics, epidemics, history of medicine. So, you know, he takes a very uh, large and expansive view. But three hours in, uh, later, I, there is no, in, there's no uh, indication that he learned anything, mm -hmm. that it was in any way a gift to him. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful uh, film, and I recommend everyone watch it. So mm -hmm. I thought, oh, that's very interesting, because for me, it was such, so much the ground of my learning. So is it possible to then a kind of respond to that film with another, mm -hmm. by taking up the concept of fragility and looking at the aesthetics of fragility, how we think about fragility, and to tell the story not as I had done in my own memoir. I have a memoir of my experience of brain injury called Interleaves. Um, but I wanted to, to expand the frame and to start to make, even, and even though the film itself is about bodily fragility, and it's a story, it's a series of vignettes and what we might call sutras, which are, you know, uh, compressed um, insights, one might say, um, and um, poetry. I wanted it to be not the story of a person, but the story of an idea, mm. and in which we can uh, link bodily fragility. Most of the stories are about bodily fragility, but also with social fragility. And I wanted to make it my love letter to the Bay Area, mm. because it was here in Oakland, California, that all this learning came to me. Mm -hmm. And it was possible for it to be given to me because of the enormous work that people have been doing here in keeping alive different spiritual traditions, allowing them to cross-fertilize with, with uh, ways of thinking and ways of transcoding and translating that are very specifically and peculiarly United Statesian. Mm. The same teachings, ancient teachings, being inflected with the kind of local argot, you know, with the local accent, mm -hmm. and very, um, you know, feminist, queer, open-hearted ways of contemporaneously 
giving that teaching. You know, so mm-hmm. it won't, I wanted it to be a, a gift. So it was shot in the Bay Area and I invited people um, uh, to participate in the project. So we have Angela Davis who opens the film, Sherry Moraga, somebody else who has contributed enormously to our ways of thinking about intersectionality and uh, culture and gender and sexuality and also many others. Uh, It's a racially diverse uh, selection of people to honor the fact that this is a racially diverse area and the fact that these issues are cut across race and gender and class and so on. So it's really the story of an idea. And the idea is it's the dance between strength and fragility, uh, both in relationship to aging, uh, but also in relationship to politics and in relationship to dying. So there are the different little vignettes address different different aspects mm-hmm. of uh, what fragility might mean. And um, I must say, when I made, the, made it, I had assumed that the audience for it would be people who, are, who have faced these issues themselves, who may be people who are disabled, people who are ill, or people who are aging. But what's been remarkable in traveling with the film uh, around the US and in Europe and in Argentina as well is the extraordinary response of young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, because young people are facing precarity in a way that I did not in my generation face at that, their age. Economic precarity, psychological precarity, the precarity of climate change and what it portends for the human um, subdivision and for the planet as a whole. And of course, now you have the pandemic as another layer. Mm-hmm. So it was at the time of the pandemic that we made the film open access because we felt it could be perhaps useful to people as a resource in facing what we are continuing to face. Now a word for our sponsor, The Death Deck, a lively game of surprising conversations. The Death Deck, I got one right here. Checka, checka, checka. The Death Deck offers up thought-provoking questions with a large dose of humor to help take the taboo out of the topic of death. Unique among card decks and conversation tools, this witty game encourages players to share their thoughts and stories and gets people talking about personal preferences on life's ultimate decisions in a non-threatening and surprisingly fun way. If you've been listening to the episodes, the last few at least, you've heard this actually happen in action, real time. Is that a thing real time it's not maybe it's not real time but it's was recorded and you heard it happen and at some point it was real time but the point is we nick jana the producer and i and we'll do it at the end of this episode we've been playing the game and it's awesome i mean that's the best vote i can give towards you getting your own death deck 
The death deck is comprised of 112 questions and designed to be used in a variety of ways as a party game with friends and family, as a tool among healthcare professionals in senior living centers, as an icebreaker for meetings or conferences, as prompts for discussions prior to completing your estate planning. You can use them to open up conversations and increase your comfort um, around death and mortality. Contemplating our mortality, in case you didn't know, leads to greater appreciation for the finite days we have, leading to living life more fully. Y'all probably get that if you're listening to a show called You're Going to Die. We'll now get a game that helps you do the same. And I just have to say, so grateful for the Death Deck and their support of our show. This is as heartfelt as I can get my encouragement that you go to thedeathdeck.com and use our coupon code YG2D to get yourself $5 off your own death deck. I mean, do it now. Like, I'll wait for you. I won't actually. We have to finish the episode. But um, you could pause the episode and come back to it. Go to thedeathdeck.com, enter our coupon code YG2D, Get your $5 off. Get your own death deck. The fact is, you're going to die someday. You might as well play a fun game about it before you do. Have I told you yet how there's no way I could have ever or ever do this podcast without Nick Jana, our producer. There's stuff I'm doing to make it work. And obviously I'm your host and that seems important. Question mark, <laughs> question mark. Uh, the question, the big question mark. <laughs> but uh, Nick Jana, so good with the sound engineering and production side of things and this moment i have to share with you is no exception to that fact i asked lata if she wouldn't mind sending lots of whatever just to kind of give us things to work with uh to fill out the episode and make it lovely and meaningful and she sent me this recording of a summer morning bird song and crickets in Bangalore, India. And so thanks to Nick, here's a little lovely close your eyes kind of moment to settle and just be.
Well, you know, form has become very important to me. I think you would agree with me that we live in a very instrumental world, very transactional, and so much of what is traded is, and what is debated, and what is um, uh, puzzled over, and um, uh, is our, our so-called facts, right? But we know that in in touching hearts, facts are not enough. What we need, I think, instead is create conditions in which people can experience an idea, sensorially experience an idea, because we are so in our heads. And with the pace of life and the predominance of social media, things have only gotten um, um, worse in, in, in the sense that it is very difficult to stand back and reflect. So Nicholas and I have been working on a form. Uh, we, we, we made a few video poems. And then this, uh, this is a form that the Poetics of Fragility is, is what we call a video contemplation. And one of the things that we would like to do in the work that we do is to give people back time. Time just is not just draining away, mm -hmm. but it's very much here. And it's about creating um, an aesthetic experience that allows people to experience time. So I don't know that uh, shot of the sunset, for example. Mm -hmm. We just stay yeah. till the sun sets. We trust the audience to stay with us. And we do that so as to offer a sensorial experience of the ideas in the film, but we also do that to honor a meditative principle where you need to fall between below the chatter of mind in order to be able to discover something else and not just stay with always already memory, what you already know. So given that we are living in a very fast-paced world, we have noticed um, when the film is screened that some people will start to fidget and then they will just start to relax into the pacing of the film. Mm -hmm. And that enables that little crack to open up so that you can begin to move beyond conventional ways of thinking or habitual ways of thinking. So the form has become um, a very uh, interesting to me because I am not, I'm interested in, in issuing an invitation to think with me. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think we need to guard against is not loving ourselves enough to take ourselves seriously. It is always easier to give credit to something other, bigger, more abstract. You do it for your country. You do it because you have conquered something, right? And you can erase yourself in the process. I think the humility that was gifted to me was how precious it was to be able to simply breathe. I came from a Marxist background and being productive and useful to society was going to be my aim and goal in life. And for about six years, all I did was breathe. Was my life worth living? Right? So 
loving the self enough to honor the experience of the self but in that process you realize that the self doesn't stand alone that the self is itself composed of so so many forces energies people that it feels to me that it was um a lesson in accepting the generosity of the universe accepting my need for help from other people which is an ongoing thing for me i still need a lot of support from a lot of people and understanding that there is as much in giving as in receiving and that in sometimes it's harder to receive than it is to give you just need to stop me if i keep bringing it back to this accident but it feels it feels important i'm keep getting drawn back to this because of some of the things you want to talk about i think that connect which is do you think of that time as a transition into becoming more intimate with what's in more intimate with the sacred in contrast to uh, life before the accident as being more bound to the secular and not saying that leaving the secular is, you know, you needed to do that so you can move on to the right thing. I'm sure maybe I suspect you would even honor both in a way, the sacred and the, and the, uh, the secular. Do you feel that time marks? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, um, yeah, it was a turning point in my life. Actually, I, I, fell, um, I fell into the sacred. The sacred came to rescue me. It made me intimate, not just with myself, but helped me to understand how to be, how to cultivate intimacy with the universe. But my secular training, which I had in the depths of my injury felt I had left behind and I had mentally overthrown, came back to claim me. Because as I got well, the spiritual instruction that I was given was to bring these worlds together. And if you think about a spiritual teaching, what it can uh, help you to understand, what it asks you to do is to think about your conditioning. How is it that you've come to see the world the way you've come to see it? But part of your understanding your conditioning is to also understand the social. It's not just the psychological, right? And the categories that we, are, um, that we need to understand the social are secular categories. Because it, it's, it's secular knowledge that deals with the social. So whether we're talking about sexuality, racism, economic injustice, history, geography, all the things that we need Topography, all the things that we need to understand. Uh, it's not that they don't have their sacred dimension. Certainly topography has a very sacred dimension as well. But we need secular categories and even to understand our own conditioning. And for me, um, the other challenge has been, and a, a thread in my own work, has been bringing sacred, the idea of the sacred to secular activism. Mm. That is something that um, uh, has been much more integrated. It is never, it is never diverged. If you think about African American political traditions, Native American um, uh, spiritual traditions, and and political traditions, they have always 
Um, these have lived together, braided together, and supported each other and inspired each other, you know, liberation theology, you name it. But within a certain kind of secular left culture, the idea of the sacred has been somewhat less uh, acceptable. And certainly it is true of India, uh, where um, we also have a Hindu fundamentalist government, which makes turning to the sacred even more complicated, shall we say. So a lot of my work has been about bringing them together. In fact, I have a book called Sacred Secular mm. as one word, oh, yes, two yes. capitalized S's. Oh, perfect. Uh, this is what I mean. I mean, your instinct, you just honed in I, on I it. I mean, I would like, I, I both am like, I should have looked at all the titles of all your books <laughs> to get ready to talk to you, but I didn't happen to read that title. And so I, that's amazing that that's the name. Of yeah, the and it's, it's a sub- subtitle is Contemplative Cultural Critique. Mm. And I guess in some ways, the poetics of fragility is also a kind of contemplative cultural critique. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yes, it was a turning point. And I feel like these are, these are both inheritances that have a lot to say to us in the present. Mm-hmm. And um, we can make um, our lives so much more joyful by um, opening to them if our hearts are inclined. Mm -hmm. And not everybody's heart is inclined. Mm -hmm. So that is why it's an invitational pedagogy, anything that I do. Find out more about what Dr. Latamani is up to. You can go to her website at latamani.com, L-A-T-A-M-A-N-I.com. And as mentioned and encouraged, please check out the short 60-minute film, The Poetics of Fragility. You can do that at thepoeticsoffragility.com. It's free to watch on that website. And thanks to Lata for saying yes to this podcast and joining me and having this conversation. So glad we got to share it with all of you. Yeah. And you too, Nick. Hey, man. Yeah. Hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> hi. Uh, you uh, posted a really nice Instagram post this week on the mm. You're Going to Die Instagram, the Y-E-R going number two die Instagram. Uh, just so people can find it because I, I don't want to, yeah, you can just go to, <laughs> you can go to YG2D.com and just go to the bottom of the webpage and okay. click the Instagram icon. Uh, I would just but point yes, people I to that because it was it. a long post and I'm not going to like reread it here in front of you. Oh, uh, I was hoping you'd read it, <clears throat> read but it, it starts like me. this. <laughs> no, it's a nice window into some of the other work that you do through you're going to die that, um, I think you're, you're very modest about or don't, don't. I understand it's like not a thing that you want to plaster everywhere, but there's a picture of you in a uh, like a hospital gown and gloves and mask, like about to go into a room with somebody and just talking about that feeling 
that you have as you go uh, on these visits of just sitting and listening with with people who are cancer patients or or otherwise mm-hmm. patients who are dealing with the facing their mortality mm-hmm. and i just i thought it was really interesting to learn about and i guess i had a couple of questions about it oh yeah I, I just like the the functioning of it are, are you do you just have like a like a god you guys his nick is like smirking no i'm <laughs> like it's like you can't see the smirks so i just want you to know what i'm dealing it's with not with a the smirk. questions coming no, right it's, it's the smirk. cutest smile i've ever seen him smile okay i'm ready for the questions <laughs> it's because you're hunched over like i'm like grilling you like <laughs> like ready. it's like the sixty thousand dollar question and you have to focus <laughs> i've got this do i have a call do i have a lifeline <laughs> Do you, uh, through this work, just get sort of like free roam? To, like in your intro, you were talking about like coming into this room with this patient who is uh, with a priest. Like, do you just kind of have free roam to just go into different rooms or do you know who you're visiting? Do you have certain people that you know you're mm. visiting? Yeah. Um, I just go, if there's a hospital, I walk in it and I just start banging no, on doors. No. Come on. <laughs> no, no. Okay. All right. All right. So, um, yeah, I mean, often I'll, I'll have a conversation with the medical staff, the nurses mainly, and they might suggest going into a room. And and usually I do say it like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we do creativity, we work on projects, there's writing, I'll bring art materials in for them, all free, just like something else to kind of process or pass the time. But also, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I tell the nurses, I say, you know, really, I'm just curious about people who you think are lonely or need maybe to be listened to and have something to say. And the nursing staff by now knows uh, also, like I described at the beginning of the episode, that I'm in no rush. Like I don't have to go into another room like they have to do. That's yeah. part of their job. And so they, I think they both have a real present. I honestly, like most of them have a real awareness of the need that I might be offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, something towards and they don't they can't do it yeah and and i think during the pandemic it's been especially hard and so i i mentioned that because i think a lot has fallen on the shoulders of of medical and healthcare professionals because people like your general public couldn't go in to be with p- these patients have, that have covid or cancer or whatever reason they're t- they're in the hospital for long stays dying healing whatever and so now to be back it feels really clear that i'm i'm back and meet a need maybe that they understand m- more than ever I, I i wonder and so the conversations are usually clear in that way like what of your patients might need someone to visit and be with them right now and so based on that they might say this one for sure and here's some information just to keep in mind mm-hmm. um and then but there is kind of a cold calling aspect to it when i don't have a referral or a recommendation and it's always really <laughs> really intense like that photo one of the the managers at the hospital uh, who i consider a friend and i i i just am so grateful for her. But she asked if if I wanted a picture taken of me dressed up and all that stuff. And when she took the photo, she was like, you're so serious. And I was like, it is serious. And I don't mean maybe in the obvious ways. I mean that it's serious always before I walk in a room because I just have no idea what to expect, yeah. even when someone has said, go in this yeah. room. Yeah. So th- and just, there's usually so much behind the door. It seemed like your photo was like d- depicting that 
moment of right before you walk in the door, it's like, well, here we go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, literally. And I did just, I did go in that door right then. And it was like a patient that was in a lot of pain and on, on a lot of medication and pain medication. In fact, it's a patient that I talked to today again on the phone because we're, she's joining one of my writing workshops that I do through, through that work. And she was like, all right, so I want to talk to you before tomorrow. And, and I, I'd love it if you could just tell me about, about the workshop. And I was like, yeah, totally. I will do that again. Cause I did actually do it already when I walked into your room <laughs> and spent like five minutes with you explaining what the workshop was. And she was like, Oh my God. Mm. And I was she's like, she had no recollection of it. Oh. And I just share that as sort of an anecdote that is an example of what these interactions can be like, uh, specifically. And that it is that it was that it was a version of here goes, I'm going to go in here. I just don't know. And I went in there and someone was really in it. And so I'll be there for a bit and move on until I, I could go to many rooms that are like that. But then I find a room where someone's like, yeah, sit down with me. You know, I, I'd love to tell you my story. Mm-hmm. That's usually where I start. It's like, what were the symptoms first? Can we start there? tell me as much or as little as you want. And then we just go Mm -hmm. until all the way through until like the bed, you know, that they're laying in the story that got them there. Mm. Wow. Um, There was a comment someone made on the Instagram post. Uh, I'm sure you've contacted them personally, but I just thought it'd be interesting to talk about. They said, I'm interested in doing what you do, where would be a good place for me to start. And I'm, I'm interested not in, and and I couldn't know because you didn't necessarily go through any remotely conventional path to this, like university degrees yeah, or anything right. <laughs> like that. But I'm curious when you talk about like when you say like that moment of right before you step into the door and you don't know what you're going to get. My correlation to that is performance, which you also do of just like, all right, I'm going up on the stage and we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not as dour or <laughs> life or death in yeah. that case but and also the the thing that got you here was hosting an open mic for 10 years which is not the path that <laughs> right other people necessarily need to take but i wonder some of the pieces of your unconventional path that you could explain of of how you got to that you know the guy who goes into mm-hmm. those rooms yeah yeah it's funny that person i mess i i commented or replied to their comment and said dm me uh cuz i i'd be happy to talk about it and they wrote me and they asked me the same question, but then they said, and um, also like, what do you do exactly? <laughs> and so true, the question really points to something that's very real part of this. And it's a few things that you've touched on, which is like, I don't have a degree. There's no letters really connected to my name. And I've said this before, maybe not on the podcast yet, but there's a way that you're going to die is grown from maybe, I think me not being a doctor or a nurse or a therapist or a psychologist or a social worker, Mm -hmm. that it's been born from me really leaning into the sort of, it's a funny word, but like the seductive quality of, of these spaces and also my own need. And so then creating uh, occurrences or relationships that are really born from that 
that place rather than me being led by someone who's a professional. Mm -hmm. And so then when I walk in, there's a humbleness I have, uh, uh, maybe like imposter syndrome, but a little bit of like, I might not know what to do here. Even after all these years, even the open mics have that feeling. Yeah. And so I think actually it's healthy because it keeps me humble, I hope, but also it opens up the possibility that other people will lead what happens. And, and so then the listening is so important that I'm just paying attention for where this person's willing to go and wants to and needs to go. Yeah. And, and that's as true of the workshops as it is of the open mics as, as, it, as it is as the, you know, the visits in the hospital room. Um, and so that's sort of the like, kind of abstract way of showing up and why I'm in, in this, but the, the, the too long of a story to say now is that part of why I'm getting to walk through that room is because I think I've also personally have just been listening for the compulsion of where can I go next? Mm -hmm. And so the very beginning, I do an open mic for years and then somehow eventually I'm like, I want to do hospice work. So I, I follow that doorway, go through that doorway. At some point, I, m I met someone who runs the program at the hospital mm -hmm. for this work, and I didn't give up. I just knew it's where I wanted to be. Yeah. And so then that's backed even more importantly, like I said at the beginning of the episode, by my mom's experience with cancer and what happened to her. Um, I may not have mentioned that in detail, but uh, it, it is connected that she died from cancer and what she might have needed. Somehow, I feel like I'm bringing into these rooms. Right for others. And there's a connection there. So it's like, I don't even know what I'm going to say to this person who wants to know how they could get to do this work. But I do think it's going to be a version of like, well, very definitively start by becoming a volunteer in these contexts. Mm -hmm. And then maybe the only other thing is like, what do you need? Yeah. That's missing. And you know, you know, when you say like the imposter syndrome, I know moments when I feel like that, like, for example, I'm teaching a poetry class and everybody in the class is as old as my parents, except they all have like <laughs> master's degrees in writing or something. And I'm like, I didn't even graduate college. What am I doing? Um, yeah. Remembering that the unique path can be really valuable, not just in spite of the lack of letters and degrees, but because of it, because yeah. I traveled around the country and slept in my car or I played a hundred shows to, to eight people. There's something that I learned in creativity and writing and perseverance through that. And because you didn't go through the grind of medical school and all that stuff, you honestly still have <laughs> a lot of empathy available that wasn't pushed out of you because of a system or, you know, however you want to look at that, there is something really valuable mm -hmm. to your, the way that you got there. And I love that idea of just like, I'm just getting there and however winding path I take, um, I'll be there. And then it's just about, feeling like you belong once you're there, you know? Yeah. This episode was really nice for me to talk a lot about that. You're right. I'm, I'm, I'm careful. It's such a strange, another person commented and said, uh, and I love this. They said, what's it like walking into a hospital room and representing something called you're going to die. And the truth is I, I don't say it. Mm. And, and, and if I ever do, it's, it's deep in the relationship or it's in a quickening of connection where it could possibly make sense. Mm. But mostly I don't utter those words for obvious reasons. Yeah. Shall we do a death deck card? Yeah. All right. I just pulled, um, this better be random. I, it is random. I actually, 
yeah, I'm randomly picking another one. <laughs> Making it more random or I less didn't random? Look, I didn't look. I don't know. I don't know. I just grabbed one and then I put it back and I grabbed another one. Okay. All right. Here, here's your uh, death deck card. You guys can check out the death deck at thedeathdeck.com and use our coupon code YG2D to get your own death deck. Nick. Yep. This card is titled Secret Ink. Ooh. At the moment of death, a secret tattoo appears on your body that symbolizes something you stood for or believed in. What is it? <laughs> and maybe more importantly, where is it? <laughs> All right, let's keep this clean. Okay. All right, six pack of beer on my six pack abs. <laughs> Six pack of abs with a tattoo of a six pack of beer over them. Yep. So well, that was so easy. God and all the saints can know what I stood for. No. <laughs> um, I guess I'll just go with my first thought: uh, a redwood tree um, mm. o- over my heart seems like the the best place to do it. Um, mm-hmm. Just uh, everything that I want to be is stronger and more still supportive and more peaceful um inspiring and um not ostentatious <laughs> you know yeah everything that the redwoods represent and um I, I, there's often not a lot of symbology or artifacts of human culture that i would want to really 100% stand behind of just like, yep, mm-hmm. I'm down with this. <laughs> um, but a redwood tree would be, to me, showing what I felt I was aligned with in my life. Mm. Yeah, I love that. That's that's real nice. Good pick. Thank you. How about you? Well, um, I, I've used this time to um, rifle through a few options. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> just pouring my heart out about redwood trees no, i was like bo- i was both listening and just feeling really really nervous because i just can't think of something um, what was your first thought uh, um i'm not sure it was clear enough uh i've gone through like um, just like dead, you know, like the tattoo dead on my chest. Um, the word just to be like clear. Yeah. The word, <laughs> the word dead, um, just to be like, use this opportunity to have something really let people know that I'm definitely dead, <laughs> um, or, or like do not resuscitate or something, um, which is real. I mean, people get those tattoos and then in response to your, like, you know, I can't really get behind any, this, that, and the others. I was like, I think just like the Walmart logo uh, just across my back would, would be, uh, something really fitting Mm. for, for my life. Um, savings and 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 quality. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, um, this is just me thinking of funny things to say because it's re- I'm really having a hard time with a getting to an honest engage with the question Ned. option. This is so unlike I, you. I, I am right Go now. Deep. I am right now. This is how this is how I'm engaging. Um, You're just jettisoning jettisoning joke, jokes overboard so you can get to something. Well, real. I guess I'm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, when we don't know what to do, just better better to make them laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I'm trying to imagine who would see this thing. (laughs) 
I was thinking like the, you know, the, the specter of death or your maker. I mean, it seems funny to need to have like a, a something on your body for <laughs> God <laughs> to read. He's busy, you know, he's sorting through dead bodies. He doesn't have a so chance literally to like, needs to be able to read it real quick. You can't read your autobiography. Sorting through dead bodies. <laughs> he doesn't have time to read your memoir. What is he doing? What is he doing? He can't though? Google like, you. Why is he sorting through dead bodies? <laughs> to put him in the right place. That's good. heaven, hell, okay. hell, heaven, 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 hell. All right, hell. well, heaven. I would put that on my. <laughs> I would say heaven, please. No, uh, no, you, know, you can't fragile. trick God. <laughs> uh, well, why? If he's sorting, he's looking at the bodies, and I would hope that he would see it said heaven and was like, "We'll send you. We'll send you there. Sure, that's easy. I don't have time to to think it through." Um, I can't believe you're not engaging with I'm this on a deeper level. I am. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> At the moment of death, a secret tattoo appears on your body that symbolizes something you stood for or believed in. What is it and where is it? Um, you know what? I've thought about tattoos that I, because I think you'll get that Redwood tattoo someday. Probably. Yeah. And I don't know what I'm going to get someday. I already have a tattoo and I got it when I moved home with my mom. She, she was sick and, and, um, it seemed like she was dying and she didn't for a year. You know, I got to go home and live with her for that time. But before I moved home, I was in LA and I was watching, I didn't have a job. I was in between jobs. I didn't have a home. My stuff was all in storage. I didn't have a relationship. Like literally all these things had just dissolved. And I was sleeping on a couch at a friend's, um, smoking just tons of weed and probably watching waking life every day. <laughs> um, and it's a Richard, if you haven't seen it, it's a Richard Linkletter film. It's, uh, they use this technique called rotoscoping where they film all the footage and then a bunch of artists do art over, uh, animation over all the film footage. And it's, it, it's one of my favorite, favorite movies. But when my mom got so sick that I needed to move home and I could, cause I was in such a like question mark of a moment in my life, I, I went home and I got a tattoo and I, I, I have to say, like, I would like to redo it because um, I feel like I, I didn't get the best tattoo artist, but it's in a place on my body that's like hidden. And as I get old and saggy and just a ball of wrinkles, it won't look grosser and grosser, but it's on my back and it's an infinity symbol. Uh, and it's like a wall. The wall is the infinity symbol, a wall running in a figure eight that's like breaking to bits. And then there's Japanese symbols. I know it's super cliche, but like I, I was 20, you know, three or four, um, the Japanese symbols for dream and life. And the waking life movie is this like constant, like main character. If you could call him that waking up over and over again, never actually in real life. And there's a lot of themes of lucid dreaming. And, and I think what I hope all of this work does. And what I got out of that film and that time moving home with my mom was this reminder that I wanted to always keep in the back of my head, literally and figuratively. And it's that this is all just like a dream. And it's, it's, it's as like real that it's a dream as it is that it's life. And there's something both like precious and fleeting and, and important to like be loose and let go and not get attached to it because we might just wake up at any moment. 
Nice. Was that so hard? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I think that's enough. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We got there. Thanks, we got Nick. somewhere deep. Love you, buddy. <laughs> Love you, buddy. Love you, too. <laughs> okay, until next time. You get to go to heaven. <laughs> Do I? <laughs> Did you hear something? <laughs> Have a good one, everybody. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye, Nick. Bye.